did you get addicted to the football violence? Loved it, absolutely loved it. It was a drug. That was the buzz because yeah. you didn't know whether you was going to get back in one piece. The fighting broke out despite a peace plea from Spurs officials. That was my brother, the camaraderie, the loyalty. We got a hell of a lot of attention. It troubles it becomes your identity. You almost go, is that me? Yeah. Is that how the world sees me? So us as football blokes, through the right-wing politics, you didn't have to be militant to be a member of the UDA. We went all around the country. We got rid of people that we just thought, was a waste of time. Clearly, it drew attention to us. I had warnings. I had two fellas outside. When they approached me, that was military intelligence. I always say I like to think I acted responsibly because I had the power to have people killed. You know, I had the power to have people kneecapped. Have you ever, in the last 10 years, had the fear of losing your life? Welcome to the Eventful Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Frank Portinari is a former gun runner and football hooligan. He shares his story of how he went from fighting at Spurs to becoming commander of the extremist group that retaliated against the IRA. This is the eventful life of Mr. Frank Portinari. Frank, welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, Dodge. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, mate. Looking forward to this one. Let's, uh, let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up getting banged up for gun running? Well, I grew up in Camden, or what you would know as Camden. But when I was growing up, it was St Pancras, the, the borough of St Pancras. And what they did was they, they formed three different boroughs. There was Holborn, Hampstead, and St Pancras was in the middle. And of the three, St Pancras was very much the, the poor, rough, working class area. But from the, uh, the 1st of April 1965, they decided to merge it all, uh, the, three bro- the three boroughs, and uh, it became Camden. So the London Borough Camden is a relatively new borough. Mm. Um, so I was born in Kentish Town, which came under St Pancras. You had three towns, you had Kentish Town, Camden Town and um, Summers Town, all equally as, as, as rough as each other. Um, but yeah, you know, good grounding in other ways. You know, we weren't particularly well off. But that was most of the that was most of the community. Mm. And what was life like for you at school? Well, I can almost feel my wife's eyes bearing down on me now. When, when you know, you've asked that question, because we both know the answer to it. Uh, if I'd have stayed on at school, I'd have think I'd, I would have done okay because I was always told I was a bright kid. And although, yeah, I sp- when you go to secondary school, there's other temptations. I know, but. But generally speaking, I knew the first couple of years I was smart. I progressed through the school. Um, but then, as I say, you get to about 14. You, you start knocking about with other other kids, you know, where they knock about. You start getting into fights. You start getting into trouble. And if I'm honest, I, I left school way too early. You could leave at 15 in 1972. It was the last year you could officially leave. 
um, at 15, but I'd left by the time I was 14 mm. because the family wasn't particularly well off. Um, there's times I was going to school with I was in my shoes. You know, kids today won't believe that. In 1970, mm. 71, you was going to school where I was in your shoes. But it was the truth. Mm. And um, although we'd always got by paper rounds, pulling the stalls out down the market, we'd done things like when I was pulling down the old houses, we, um, we'd go in and get the old furniture and books and ornaments and take them down the market and sell them. Then we discovered lead, copper, brass, so we'd take that down to scrap merchants. But it wasn't enough to, it wasn't a full time job. Yeah. And eventually I realised I needed to, to leave. And um, I got a job in a butcher's, Jewish, in Camden High Street. And uh, my mother came down to school one night uh, for an open evening. And she sat in front of, of a teacher and he said, Yes, madam, how can I help you? And she said, uh, I'm Frankie's mum. And he went, Frankie, you? And she said, Frankie Port and Irish. He said, I've never met your son. And as she went round the school, other teachers said, this, "Bless her, she didn't know I'd left. Yeah. She didn't know I'd left." Mm. So when I got home, she wasn't. Too, when she got home, she wasn't too happy. And I, and I said to her, "Mum, where do you think you're getting all them chops from? <laughs> the chickens, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I work at Jewish in Camden High Street." Uh, so yeah, I'd learned how to, to earn money. I thought I was a man, you know, fifteen, fourteen, fifteen. I thought I was a man. I'm out working. You know, you, you promise your, your girlfriend the world, didn't you? You know, you're earning about eight quid mm. and you're, you're promising her the world. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, to this day, I know I um, it was wrong to have left. Mm. And what was your movements as you're getting like older in your 17, 18, 19 onwards? And what was your movements also getting involved with Tottenham? Well, where we lived, you take into account the late 60s, early 70s, there wasn't as much traffic on the roads. So we played football in the street. You, you played, a, your goals were the gable walls yep. and you, you stayed out till it got dark, basically. Your parents knew where you were. Um, so we was football mad, absolutely football mad. In my, in my street, it was, it was mainly Tottenham. And the reason for that was they'd done the double in 60, 61. They won the FA Cup at 62, the Cup Winners' Cup, 63, FA Cup again. So most people's dads, uncles, older brothers were, were mainly Tottenham. Um, and then eventually you get to go, you know, which again, you need money to do it. Mm. And, uh, I, I had a little coal ram with my uncle, not lifting them big bags mm. of coal. I used to had just a little 28 pound bags of coke and, uh, coal. And we used to supply the, um, hardware shops. So I'd get money from that. That meant I could go the football and, um, yeah, that's when you're, you're heroes, wasn't it? You, you mm. saw people you didn't... There wasn't so much football on the telly, was there, mm. in those days? Yeah, three or four channels, three channels. Well, that was it. So if you wanted to see your heroes, you had to make the effort. And in those days, the crowds were massive, yeah. absolutely massive. And I always say, if you played somewhere like Manchester United or Liverpool or Newcastle, you were lucky to get in some, yeah. in your own stadium sometimes. Um, but yeah, that's when it, it got... Um, I got quite um, fanatical, for want of a better way of putting it. And even even in secondary school, when I was 14, I went to my first away game, which was up in Manchester, uh, Main Road. I just love Main Road. And um, we, Well, I didn't, so we got beat 4-0. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, 
and I got you have to ch- walk through Moss Side as well, didn't you? Well, I got right. chased after the game. As you know, ten stone seven kid getting chased. They was after my scarf when I worked at school every day, and I thought, "There's no way I'm going to school Monday without this scarf." <laughs> you know, um, so that toughened me up a little bit, mm. if I'm honest. And then when I was probably fifteen, sixteen, I was up in Stoke, and you go with the bigger fellas, didn't yeah. you? And well, some of them fellas might have been big, but they had no bottle. Yeah. And I, I, I suddenly was quite isolated with a very small group of fellas. And it just was a case of run or, or stand. And I thought to myself, well, sometimes you can run, get tripped up, and you're, you're in more trouble than if you stood. Yeah. So I stood. And then, of course, the, the following week, the home game, some fellas went, hello, mate, you all right? See you up in Stoke last week. Fair play to you. Mm. So you, you, that's the start of the journey mm. in a way because mm. you, you're suddenly getting a little bit of recognition. Did you enjoy that? If I'm honest, I loved it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it mm. because I didn't have any brothers. Yeah. Um, that was my that was my brotherhood, mm. if you like. The, the camaraderie, the loyalty. Uh, you know, you kind of had certain, you learn over, people would follow you. You learned that people would follow you. If you're going to Newcastle on a Wednesday night, people start, I can't make it. I can't get off work. I can't do this. I can't do that. If they know a certain hardcore are going, they'll make more yeah. of an effort yeah. to go. So if I'm honest, it became a bit of a pressure. Mm. It became what well, I've got to go. I have to go. An addiction as well. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Well, I learned, well, we'll talk about that mm. later on because. Mm. Because most of my story boils down to one form of addiction or other. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. You know. Did you get addicted to the football violence? Did you get addicted to having a going away to Stoke and going to Upton Park? Yeah. The away days, the days we yeah. all remember, right? Home games were okay. Yeah. But no, the away ones Agreed. because that was the buzz because yeah. you didn't know whether you was going to get back in one piece. Um, and yeah, you 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 started to identify. Who was a face and who wasn't a face? Mm. I mean, I, I, I'm 66 now. You know, I still talk to blokes who are in their 70s. Yeah. Because when I was I was following them when I was 16. Yeah. And they were the old they were the older blokes. Um, what were the firm called in Tottenham back in the day? Well, it was the end of the state. It was that end of the grand you stood, wasn't it? It was the Park mm. Lane. Yeah. So they was just the, they were just the Park Lane end. Okay. The same as Chelsea would have been the shed, and yeah. obviously West Ham had your North Bank yeah. and run and. Yeah. So yeah, it was more where you stood in those mm. days. All the other fancy firm names came along after. <laughs> Later in the eighties, yeah. we weren't called firms. <laughs> then. We were just a gang or a mob. Wasn't yeah. it? it wasn't quite the same, yeah. you know. So tell me your day to day. What was your day to day at that time when you're going to footy, saving up, earning money? And what was happening in your 20s? Well, it would have been, football was twice a week, wasn't it, for a yeah. start. It was every Wednesday. So as soon as Wednesday was over, you was already started talking about Saturday. Uh, I also got the bug for Europe as well. And that would have been 70. Whenever Argentina won the World Cup. Yeah. And we signed Ardelis and Ricky Villa. Yeah. And I was in a pub in Somerstown. And my mate Bill said to me, uh, it was a Sunday night, and he said, uh, what are you doing tomorrow night, Frank? I said, probably the same as I'm doing there, Bill, standing next to you and having a pint. He said, oh, no, let's go to Belgium. Yeah. Right? I never even went out of England. Yeah. Well, maybe Scotland. Yeah. And um, I said, how do you mean? He said, I think we should go over there and give them a welcome, give the Argentinian boys a welcome. I said, Bill, I never got a passport. 
but you could buy, if you're old enough to remember this, you could buy a, a yearly passport. It was a bit of cardboard. Right. And you put your photo on it and they stamped it. And it lasted for a year. So we talked a few other people into coming as well. And we got the old disco boat over to uh, Antwerp. <laughs> we played Royal Antwerp. And that definitely gave me the bug yeah. then. That definitely. And I've been all over Europe since then. Pre-season friendlies, all sorts. So you followed them um, full oh, on, have you? My poor wife was a proper widow, this football <laughs> widow. That's for sure, bless her. <laughs> and, and even that game, we played Royal Antwerp and I thought we was coming back. And... Um, my mate said, no, 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 they're playing in Holland a couple of days' time. They're playing on the, uh, the Dutch-German border, a little town called Venlo. So I stayed out there another couple of days, like, you know. Didn't have mobiles in them days, no, did you? Did you? phone a wife then, could you? <laughs> the phone the wife then. <laughs> That's the perfect excuse, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what, was the, what was it like in London at the time? Who were the, who were the hardest firm, do you think, that you were up against in oh, London? I've always said it. I've always been... I've always been totally honest about it. I've always said West Ham. Mm. I've always said West Ham. I, I think for many, many years, there was definitely, um, there was a de degree of psychology. You know, you, you could be you could be on the train and everyone would be talking very brave and you got out of East Ham or you got out of Upton Park <laughs> and you sort of looked over your shoulder and thought, oh, I'm sure there was more of this than this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, mate. I've seen it so many times. Yeah, same. And it, it and it did take one occasion where I think we gave a fair account of ourselves. And then after that, I'd always say 50-50. Yeah. But for a long, long time. I mean, you go, I mean, you know, say I'm 66. So I, I, I can remember the old Mile End mob. Yeah. They were men to me. Yeah. I was a teenager. They were grown men. Mm. So when they walked in, you kind of went... The Bill Gardner's. Yeah. You know, and mm. the banter and all that yeah. all that sort of mob, you know. So when you're a 16, 17 year old kid, you ain't you ain't competing with mm. that. And we weren't very organized at Tottenham. We didn't seem to be very organized at all. And that's the thing that everyone gives West Ham credit for. They always seem to be they always seem to be organized. Mm. But we had it was similar with us and Arsenal though. For yeah. years we had it over Arsenal. We'd always be up in the North Bank, you know, I've got nicked up there before now. We'd um, we always had it over them, and then that changed. There was a period in the eighties that changed. There was a period in the nineties because we got complacent, mm. and there was another generation coming through, and we were suddenly the older fellas who thought, you know, you'd be standing in the pub and they go, Arsenal's coming up the high road, and you go, yeah, all right. Well, like last year, yeah. So you pick your pint up, and you take no notice, yeah. and when you come out of the pub, you find out they've taken liberties outside. Yeah. So. I think every dog has its day, so mm. to speak, you know. But in, I think anyone in London, you know, I think London have all have how, had their how day. Have, how was it for as a Tottenham fan going to Millwall away? I went there uh, Boxing Day. Yeah. So that was when we was in the second division. I don't know if it was World in Action or Panorama that mm. did a programme leading up to it. Mm. So we had little skirmishes with them on the underground. And we, they was all going, you know, when mm. you come to bandit country and all this, and you know, that would be at Euston or King's Cross or somewhere. On the day, they made it a 12 o'clock kickoff, and I'd been to a, a Christmas party the night before, and I left at five o'clock. Everyone's going the next day, right? Eight o'clock, my mate Bill comes knocking on the door, and I mean a knock on the door mm. of a knocker. And uh, I'm half pissed. 
you know, I've done a bottle and a half, bottle and a half of Captain Morgan's rum. And I went, <laughs> Bill, you've got to be joking, mate, ain't you? Hmm. He said, come on, we've got to go. He says, I've, I've got the works fan. He's nicked the works fan. And on the back of it, there were shovels, pickaxes, all kinds of tools. I said, what's the plan, Bill? He said, we're going to drive down Old Kent Road. He said, we're going to attack the Canterbury Arms. I said, well, where's everyone else? It was us two. <laughs> Seriously. It was, was it? Fucking two. it was us two. <laughs> and in the end, we, we knew that other people were going to be down at Old Street, Oxton, yeah. Bethnal Green. He picked a few more up. But listen, we, we drove too near London Bridge and, and, and the old Bill tumbled us. Mm. But that, that was, I'd, I'd say that was the maddest day I've ever had at football in this country. That was the maddest day I've... I've seen a fella put a screwdriver for a fella's cheek. There was um, wooden fencing was being used, people hitting each other with it, throwing at each other. And then even some railings, metal railings, mm. throwing them like spears. And I thought, fuck this. Mm. You know, again, again I say, we, and, I, and I know some Millwall fellas, and they give us credit where it's due. Mm. And we've been over there a few times since. And was that pre-game um, or after-game or both? That was after the game. After. That was after. Yeah, the, the old boy had it pretty much wrapped up before yeah. the game. But well, I've never seen so many blokes wearing suits because they'd all been to park Christmas parties yeah. the night before, you know. <laughs> just left a party and thought, fuck it, we're going you know, to go to Millwall. What was that feeling like being a Tottenham fan, getting out Upton Park and walking down Green Street with all the old bill around you, knowing that the West Ham fans were on the other side of the road? Because it's quite tight around there, right, before you get into the ground. Have, have you seen the footage where there was a documentary and, it, and, and one of the West Ham fellas says, he says, all, all, all the mugs are in the middle. You've got the border boys right at the front, he said. Well, I was in the middle. I was, I was quite offended by that. <laughs> I was quite offended by that. But my, but my theory was if there was on the other side of the road, you could break out the middle. You couldn't break through the front. Yeah. But you can break out through the middle. And I actually saw myself on the, actually saw myself on the telly because mm. a cop had come up with a, with a police dog like, get me back on the pavement. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was some. I think it depends how old you was at the time. Mm. As I said, as a teenager, it was very daunting. Yeah. Very daunting. Once you got in your 20s and Feel right. It was a bit yeah. different than when you proved yourself, mm. and you couldn't lose face in front of your mates. Mm. So that that was a that was a big thing as well. Are there any other firms around the country you look at and it springs to mind? You go straight away. You think Middlesbrough, Lunatic, tough fans, firm. or Stoke yeah. City, tough firm. Yeah, Middlesbrough, yeah. Cardiff. What name? Give me some club names that spring to mind out of London. Well, I think you've always got to say Man United because there were so many of the bugs. Yeah. I mean, thousands of them, weren't there? Yeah. So um, I always say, if you was a, if you landed on a fucking desert island, the first person you'd meet was a Man United fan, because <laughs> they're everywhere, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. You know? So you'd have to give them credit, and we had some mad battles with them down at Euston Station, especially the Cockney Reds. Mm. So when all the Manx had gone back, were on their coaches and going all around the country, mm. you'd still have the London ones there. You'd still have the Cockney Reds, and we had some, you know, mad tear-ups with them. I think there's almost too many to mention. Mm. Because I've been to, I've been to Cardiff in the seventies when they was painting their faces like war paint, blue and white, and one of our top fellas we had our own coach, and one of our top fellas got the coach. And the minute he got the coach, someone punched him straight on the nose. Mm. You ain't expecting it. Yeah. You think, and older, he's one of our top boys. Yeah. Um, so that was it. I think any I think any working class region, mm. anywhere there's a port, you know, any industrial city or town. Mm. You know, so you, you, I mean, you look at the, the Midlands, you know, look at the black country. Yeah. You know, they're, they're tough, they're tough fellas. They've worked in steelworks, they've, or they've, 
Cough, Leicester. You know, it, it's tough. Yeah. Oh, I, we were always cocky because we're Londoners mm. and we, we think we always think we're the bollocks. Yeah. You know. <laughs> you know. And, and you get away with that to a certain degree. If you've got that amount of front, yeah. you know, there might be 10 of you and 30 of them, and you can see they're wary of you. Yeah. They're not quite sure. Yeah. You know, but then over the years, they've, you know, they've, I think they've all proved themselves to some degree. How many times have you been nicked at football? I got nicked over. I got nicked twice in one day. I didn't get charged. <laughs> How'd you get nicked? I, we played Arsenal. Yeah. And they, they, they all come up the high road. So that would have been in the 70s. And as they turned the corner, it all kicked off, basically, it all kicked off. I got taken to uh, Tottenham uh, PlayStation. And I was let out after the game and I didn't know the score. And I said to the fella, hey, mate, what's the score? He said, we got beat 5 0. So I went out the run, got nicked again. And uh, the copper, different copper, obviously, but I came in, it was the same desk sergeant. And he, he was, we were like this, and he went, Yeah, I met you once today already, and I. <laughs> I said, Yeah, mate, you have as it happens. <laughs> and he, fair play, he put me in a cell. He put me in a cell, and he let it all calm down. He went, Listen, he said, Go on, you're in enough trouble as mm-hmm. is. And I remember it was £25 fine. Mm-hmm. Lordship magistrates called me, it was £25 fine. It did get more expensive. I, I got nicked at West Brom. That was that was two hundred pound. What for? That was fighting. Fighting. That was fighting. Yeah. And um, I I got nicked up over, over Arsenal. That was before the game in the North Bank. That was what did I get for that? Oh, I got um, I got a month's imprisonment suspended for a year, and I got hundred pound fine. And I remember the judge saying to me. How do you intend paying? I said, I'm a little bit short at the moment. Gabby been 28 days. And I wanted to say, why'd you fucking ask him? Where's your brother asking for it? You know, you got the answer. But I was very, I was quite lucky that day because it was my birthday. Mm. I had no one representing me and I was talking to someone else's brief and I I was putting it on. I was saying, oh, my girls are at home baking me a cake. And he went, I'll have a chat with the judge. Mm. So he did in fairness to him. Uh, so I'm on this suspension. This, you know, if I get nicked now, I'm definitely going to wait for a month. Yeah. That's for sure. And not long afterwards, I got nicked up in Liverpool. So I fucked that. I'm away, and I and I was banged to rights. There's no, there was no doubt about that. But um, how how old roughly were you at this at your peak in the football violence? Or did it go on? What did it span from what age to what age oh, till you actually calmed 20s, down? Thirties, partly forties. No, not so much for it. Yeah. It could. It was less often in the forties. It okay. was more if there's half a dozen of you and half a dozen other geezers and yeah. someone shying out and giving it the bigot, then it's going to happen. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily going looking for it, if mm. you like. But in Liverpool, I was lucky. A mate came with me, and um, both both the officers, police officers, quoted from their notebooks that I'd said I'd run across the road and said I'll kill you you fucking scouse twat and I went as if to say twat I've never used that word in my yeah. life so and I even even there was three magistrates and even the woman magistrate kind of gave a funny look and I thought good she's clocked that so when half time came I said to my brief I said well, you ain't been a lot of good have you he ain't said fuck all and he went now when you go back in he said it'd be your chance to to say something 
So I remember taking my raincoat off my watch, giving me mate the wallet, thinking, I'm in trouble here. But they let me have my say. And I just said, you know, listen, your honours, I've lived in London all my life. I know a fair bit about London culture. I said, and both them officers are quoted out of their books, you know, what's been said. I said, I've never used the word sweat. Case dismissed. Mm. 160 pound cost. Mm. Now, they'd have told the truth. You think of all the other words they could have used. Yeah. But they said it the way they would say it. Yeah. So I always say to people, now, if you ever get nicked up in Liverpool, keep shouting out twat as many times as you can <laughs> and then deny it. And deny it. I'm the fucking use the word of my life. <laughs> so what was it like for you, 80s and 90s football violence? Did you have a wife at the time? Did you have a missus at the time? Uh, Girlfriend, time, yeah. wife? Yeah, still with her now. Yeah. The lovely Lisa we met, over there. We met when we was 15. Yeah. She walked past the football pitch. I thought I got. I thought that's a bit of me, like, definitely. <laughs> Didn't think I had a fucking chance. chance. <laughs> no way. To be fair, you're punching way above yeah, your well, weight, exactly. there, Frank. I know, yeah. And um, so, uh, apparently, I was quite casual about it. And um, again, I got to take our age differences into account. But we had a, a high fidelity record player, um, and I allegedly said something like. Come down my ass if you like. Play some records if you want. <laughs> Not please. Please, yeah, please yeah, come yeah, down yeah. my ass. Please <laughs> come down my ass. And uh, anyway, she did. She did. And it, it, it just developed from it developed from there. Did you, in your 20s and 30s, did you find that you were an, had an addictive personality? Whether it was booze, whether it was drugs, whether it was violence, whether it was anything else that we're going to talk about? I, I didn't discover that until I wrote the book. Okay. Because then you write a book, you then read the book, and you almost go, fuck, is that me? Yeah. Is that how the world sees me? Yeah. Because, you know, you're not filming yourself every day. Mm. You, you, know, you don't know what you like. Mm. You can, like, people might tell you what you like to a certain degree. But, yeah, it took that for me to realise there's a, there's a pattern here. There's definitely a pattern. And some of that is loyalty. Some of that is if 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 um if I get involved with something, I commit to it. If you employed me, yeah, I'd make a great employer. Yeah, because you'd always you'd always get more out of me. Mm. Where did that loyalty grow from? I don't know. I mean, it could have been because of such a disjointed family life. So I was always in other people's houses. I was always in mates' houses, and was probably envious of the fact that they had a dad in the first place. Yeah even if they didn't get on with their dad. And I know some of the dads who didn't even like their own sons, yeah. but they got on with me and that meant a lot to me. So maybe that was an early stage where I, I recognised a, a certain degree of loyalty, you know, um, to friends, um, workmates sometimes as well, you know. Did you find you were a different person on a Saturday than you were on a Thursday, Tuesday, Monday? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I mean, at one stage, I was a schoolkeeper. I worked in a school. You couldn't swear. You couldn't swear Monday to Friday in a school environment. So, of course, even my mates would point out, so I was like, oh, you need to stop swearing. Because it was like I was making up for what I couldn't do throughout the course of the week. You was far, yeah, you was far cruder on a, on a week, Friday night and, you know, through the weekend. Probably just because you could, yep. you know. What was that feeling like for you waking up on a game day 
Loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was a drug. It was a Funny enough, I don't get always give him a lot of credit, but uh, the old Chelsea boy, Jason Marriott. Mariner, yeah. He, 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 I think he gave the best quote about it. He said, if you're an alcoholic or a gambler or you've got a drug problem, you can go and get help. Yeah. He said, you can't go and get help if you're a football hooligan. Yeah. And in his opinion, the buzz was even better than the other three. Mm. Uh, and if you combine some of that as well. Yeah. But yeah, it was definitely a bug for me. I, I could I could lie to myself. I could lie to my girlfriend or my wife at the time, give every reason under the sun why I needed to be there. Even when I knew it wasn't right to be saying it sometimes. Yeah. All right, I might make up for it afterwards. You know, we might go out for a meal, we might, you know, I might buy a present, you know. But at the end of the day, I was desperate. Desperate, and I can remember a time when Lisa actually said to me, "I'd um, I'd been beaten up over Tottenham. I took a liberty. We was playing Arsenal. Arsenal went through the turnstile. Some of us hadn't had enough. We followed them through. Well outnumbered. It all kicked up again. The old bill for everyone out. I still was in the mood of fighting. I didn't want to get thrown out. So I've gone like that. Oh, and a couple went with some out. I said, oh, I've just been beaten up. Then Tottenham fuckers, like, you know, words to that effect. I should have gone. I should have yeah. left. And what I did was I went to the toilet and some of these Arsenal fellas clocked me out of the toilet. Oh, mate. And um, I, was, I was standing at a urinal, but I woke up in a cubicle mm. and uh, really dazed. And I thought, fuck that. I checked my ears, make sure they hadn't took the trophy, mm. you know. And I uh, went to the St. John's Ambulance and they said, you've you've got concussion. Um, in the meantime, after the game, people have obviously gone and knocked on Lisa's door and said, oh, Frank's been been hurt. Like, and, and that was her lot. She went, that's it. She went, that's your lot. There's, there's no more football. And of course, the following week, we had Manchester United away. I've got to go. Got to go. <laughs> got to go, Lisa. I can't not go. You don't understand. <laughs> you don't, yeah, I have yeah, to be there. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. I mean, we went to see Chaz and Dave on the Friday night. Chaz and Dave quality and uh, the Dominion Tottenham Court <laughs> yeah. Road. And believe it or not, we actually got in a fight at Chaz and Dave. At Chaz and Dave comes with just some people sitting behind us. It was us two, two other mates and their wives. And I'm singing along to Chaz and Dave and a bloke behind me went, here, mate, any chance of fucking listening to them? I've paid to listen to them, not you. And uh, I've turned around and went, shut up, you miserable mm. I said, that's what they want you to mm. do. They want you to fucking sing along. Mm. Of course, Lisa's got her nails in me, in me leg. Anyway, half time came and uh, we'd already met a mate of ours, the security, head security bloke, <coughs> Colin, who used to go over Tottenham. And... Uh, I'll come back and I can see the lights have gone down and a fella's up against the wall and someone's got their arm around his throat and he's punching them. The other fella was having a fight. I've come running down and uh, security came and Miss Colin went, he said, I don't believe it. He went, it's got to be 2,000 fucking people here. He went and it's you free. Mm. And he, he took us up to the uh, upper circle and there was two empty rows and he said, yeah, he said, you can sing, dance, kick the fuck out of each other. He said, now, we're all okay. And fair play to him. He took us back afterwards and we, he took us to the room when they was having a drink. And we had a drink with Chasm and Dave yeah. and the drummer, Mick. And uh, fair play to Lisa. She said, oh, well, I suppose you're going tomorrow now, mm. aren't you? So I did get the cut of men. You know what what I mean? so, we're talking here, in your 20s and 30s, you were properly game. Mm. This is the 80s and 90s. 
Was there ever a time when you woke up and thought, I can't carry on doing this for my relationship? Well, I'm going to have to be honest, as selfish as it sounds, no. It troubles it becomes your identity. Yeah. It's how everybody knows you. Um, even if you're not necessarily going around asking to be recognised, like, whether you like it or not, that's you. That's your identity. Even, even now, I say to people now, it can be difficult getting a reputation. You try getting rid of it. Yeah. You try getting rid of it. Yeah. And if you're in certain company now, it can be viewed as quite muggy because other people were going out earning a pound note, forming businesses, driving around in nice cars. What was you doing with your money? Mm. Your own, you know, your own uh, hard earned cash. What you was doing was, was spending it in the pub and, and, and following Tottenham. What, you, what have you got to show about that now then? So, yeah, yeah it was a difficult one, but I, I, I know there was plenty of times. I mean, I can remember when Lisa had quite a nice job and she was working in an office. And I'll say, you can't meet me at Kentish Town Station because I'm a bit short at the moment. I'll go to Tottenham tonight. And she'd give me the money. Mm. Yeah. And she's had, she's had it back, don't worry, yeah. Dodge. She's had it back <laughs> over the years. God, just on that note, fair play to your wife. Mm. We were chatting before. You've been, with, uh, you've been married 51 years. Well, been we together we, 51 yeah, years. Yeah, we met, we, met we met in August 1972. Yeah, we met in August 1972. How do you think, what do you think was going on in Lisa's mind when you were at your height of your football violence? Knowing you're coming home, I, I dread. I dread to think because uh, you know I've said this to people before. Now, when you're younger, I, I'm sure you probably think you're impressing them. Mm. You know, you come back from Leeds away, and you're regaling the stories of how you've had a punch up. Like, look at me, babe. I'm an hero. Ain't yeah. I? I'm a soldier. I've been up north having a fight with a load of Leeds fans. We assume they're going. That's my hero. Mm. That's my Frank. Well, they're probably not, are they? They're probably saying, fucking idiot. What do I want to hear that for? Yeah. What's he telling me that for? But amongst your mates, you've convinced yourself that you're the, you're the boys, isn't you? Mm. You're the boys and girls must love you for it. Um, and even probably later in life, there were times I might have thought, I go to certain places, people shake my hand, buy me a drink, tap me on the back. I'm thinking... This is nice. This is not only respect for me, this is respect for her as well. But I don't know how true that is. Mm. I don't know how true that is. And what were your movements? What age were you when you started getting involved with arms and that sort of part of your life? Well, you'd have to go back to my teens because to give you the short version, one night a group of young people, very idealistic people, came knocking on the door and they started talking about um, unemployment, bad housing, health, education, which in the early 70s wasn't particularly good. Um, and I could identify with a lot of what they were talking about. And they called themselves the Young Socialists. They invited me to a meeting. If Tottenham had been playing that night, I'd know where I would have gone. And uh, when I got there, it turned out to be more Workers' Revolutionary Party there was more of their banners up. So they were they were hardline communists, so to speak, you know, like Trotskyites and so on. And um, But it all made sense to me. I was 16, something like that. 
and for a while, I sold their newspapers, very much, a, a, you know, what people would now describe as a socialist, a young socialist, because I cared about people, I suppose. And then my mates kind of gave me an ultimatum eventually and said, listen, Frank, what's all this about fucking politics, you know, concentrate on the football. And for a number of years, I wasn't involved with anything politically. And then one night, a mate of mine who works down in um, Smithfield Market, he, he come in a pub. And he was right wing and he invited me to a meeting. Here we go again. The old uh, addictive nature. I could identify with these people because they were more like me. They weren't middle class because all, all the other lot were all tended to be middle class. I didn't even any middle class people. Mm. So I identified with working class blokes, you know, who went a football, you know, did the same things as me. And through the right wing politics, I started to find out more events that were going on in um, in Ireland, particularly Northern Ireland. And at that time, that we had, um, and it was being it was at football as well. I mean, it was being discussed. There was magazines being sold. There was badges. But in London, we we'd have parades in like, taking place in London. So every January, you'd have the like troops out parade. In August, you'd have the anti internment parade, and these were Irish Republicans and their supporters. And at the front of the parade, you'd have bands playing, normally from Scotland. And you couldn't mistake the fact that they would be playing I, and then they'd tap the drums and then go RA. So even if he was on that parade, maybe for some pretty, you know, um, legitimate claim, why would you be walking past behind a band playing IRA tunes? when London was being blown up, you know, and so on, and other parts of the, of the mainland. So us as football blokes started to attack those parades. Every year we'd attack those two parades. We'd attack some of their meetings, pubs we knew, where they sold their their literature, or they went round with the collecting tins. So the old addictive nature's kicked in again, isn't it? I've now got in. I've now got involved with this, and the police started to know us as well, the same way they knew us from the from the football. And then, to put it bluntly, it was one day the penny kind of dropped and thought, "Well, it's not exactly equal, is it? They're blowing up our cities, and we're throwing a few punches. It's not exactly equal, is it?" So people started to say, well, "What are we going to do about it? We should do something about it." Well, what are we going to do about it? You know, we're not we're not paramilitaries, but we knew people in the um, in the Orange Order, Prentice Boys, and people that we knew that were Rangers fans. You know, Glasgow Rangers fans, and so we would start to go to their socials and different things, and we'd ingratiate ourselves, and eventually, we we met. We got an introduction to somebody. And he introduced us to somebody that was the OC, which is the officer commanding of the Ulster Defence Association, which at the time was the largest loyalist paramilitary organisation in, in Northern Ireland. And we were thoroughly unimpressed with him. And um, Why? Well, when we turned up, he stunk a vodka for a, a start. He was a, he was a Scots fella, and I and I said to this other bloke, "If you think I'm putting my mates, you know, under this bloke, that ain't happening." 
So what happened then was my mates then said, well, if we're going to follow anybody, we're going to follow you. And I said, well, I don't have that kind of experience, you know, um, but I'm a quick learner. So this other, this third party who'd introduced us, we could see he was very, very keen to be in charge. And he was from Northern Ireland originally. So I said, listen, he clearly wants to be the one riding the horse. I said, why don't we let him do it? We're going to do our own thing anyway. And you had to take into account, you had to be respectful that there were already other sworn in members mm. of, of, of the, you know, of the, um, the brigade. So we, we decided what we would do is we would supply weapons to start off with. We had a meeting one evening. He came along and a friend opened up a catalogue and said, you know, we can basically get any of this stuff. What sort of stuff? All guns, all different types of guns. Okay. And he said, good work, good work, speak to Frank. And another mate went, hold on, you're in charge. Yeah. We take a dive, you take a dive. And after that, we knew he he, he, he never had the bottle for it, basically. He, he he wanted the title. And we, well, he lived over Lambeth in South London and five of us drove over there during the week, went in a phone box, because there's no mobiles in those mm. days. And we phoned him up and said, look, we're in a pub across the road. And um, three of the boys were at the bar, two of us were sitting down. He came up and he went, oh, shit, before you say anything, he said, I'm standing down. I said, no, you're fucking not. You're being stood down. Mm. And he, he looks at the bar and I, I'm glad he knew. Listen, I didn't bear him any malice, really. But um, he knew he wasn't going he, he to argue. And I'm glad he didn't argue because one of the fellas actually had a, a sawn off shotgun with him. They wouldn't, we wouldn't have killed him, but, but you know, he'd have been, a, he'd have been kneecapped. And then that would have made a statement to everybody else, don't, don't fuck about with us. Mm. Well, now you've picked up the mantle, haven't you? <laughs> There's no going back now, is it? You've just put yourself in the hot seat. And take into account there were brigades in Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, etc., etc. Um, and we were called the Cockney Upstarts because we went round the country meeting people and tried to identify who were the most militant amongst them. Because we we couldn't understand why they never did anything, and we very quickly learnt that people have to stand in a social club or a pub, telling everyone who they are, getting drinks bought for them, you know, tap on the back and getting their hands, you know, shaking and that. And we thought, hold on, hold on, this this if 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 I'm going to be in charge, I'm going to be in charge, and it caused a lot of confrontation. I mean, two of us walked out of a club in the Midlands. And they, they all they all poured out the, the club, and um, one of us pulled out a you know brand new nine automatic out there overcoat and went keep coming, you know keep coming, and we thought well if you think we're messing about we're not, and as I say for a long period of time we went all around the country, um, and we we got rid of people who we just thought was a waste of time, but um, clearly it, it drew attention to us you know the, the media the police, intelligence services, uh, military intelligence. It all, um, you know, it all, it all came on top eventually. But we, we know where we'd gone too far, Dodge. We'd, we'd, um, 
we've been to Belfast numerous times. We've been to London, Derry, um, Lisbon. We'd met certain people. And at the time, Sinn Féin, who was the political representatives of um, the IRA, were invited to London by Ken Livingstone, um, Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, etc. All Labour MPs. So they invited them to Cantyhill, they invited them to the Houses of Parliament, they invited them to Islington Town Hall, etc. And we weren't, we weren't happy about that at all. Mm. As far as we were concerned, they were traitors. Yeah. So on a particular visit to Belfast, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and in a council meeting, I said, why is it that Ian Gow, who was a Conservative MP, was, was murdered, and yet these MPs are entertaining the people that killed uh, killed him. Why are you not targeting people like them because mm. they're traitors? I should never have said that. Because when, when they asked, are you telling us that you are targeting these people? I said yes. Right. And from then on, the attention that we got, um, I could go out for a drive in the evening with Lisa and we were just followed, just constantly followed. Um, we, yeah, we got a lot of, we got, we got a hell of a lot of attention. And um, there were things like we went to buy some hand grenades. Now you can only use a hand grenade once, can't you? Yeah. So we said to this fellow, we've got a quarry, we want to take an amount and we want to try it you know, we took an ex-soldier with us and he identified the packaging, you know, make sure the serial numbers looked like it was kosher. And he wouldn't let us have one or a couple. And then someone realised they were being, one of our fellas realised they was being followed. And this bloke suddenly totally changed his mind. I said, oh, you can take as many as you like. You know, there was a lot of money dodgy involved. Mm. And we thought there's something wrong here. There's, there's something definitely wrong. We dropped it out. Years later, I was questioned by military intelligence and they brought up the subject. Of grenades, so we knew that was. How much was a grenade, roughly? Well, it was boxes of them. There was, I mean, this fellow had a load of them. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know how many were in a box. I mean, a box was a, got a bit like a crate, you know, yeah. like wooden crates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I'm looking back on it, I'm glad we never got them. What were you thinking at because that time? Because I, well, this is <laughs> the trouble is, I'll describe it like this. I do a talk now called The Treadmill, right? And I describe it like this. You get on the treadmill, you press the green button, and you go forward. You don't look left, you don't look right, you don't look behind you. You just keep going forward. And one day you press the red button and you get off and you say, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> you know, and then you start saying, well, who encouraged me to get on here? Mm. Why didn't they get on here? What were the safety mechanisms in place once you'd got on there? I mean, you can use that. You can use that example in um, in business in general. Mm. You know, if you've got people who are looking to progress in companies, you know, they can get a bit carried away, yeah. or other people can encourage them to get on the trip. So it was a bit like that. I'd I put myself in the hot seat. I'd called other people out and said, "You're a fucking fraud. You're not militant. You're not doing anything." Well, once you say that, you got to do something. Yeah. You got to do something about it. Yeah. And if you've got other people behind you backing you up and saying, 
go on, Frank. Well done, Frank. We're the boys now. Yeah. We're the ones in charge now. We're fucking show them. Well, you don't stop. It's, it suddenly becomes a responsibility. You've forgotten about you. Yeah. You've forgotten about yourself. I, I, I see it now, as I said about the book. You know, any any um, any creativity I had, you know, any any skills that I had that I could have applied to the working environment, or or just or just in my you know part, uh, in my own social time, was all wasted. Yeah. It was all focused on what I was doing, and I had warnings. I had, I, I had uh, two fellas outside. Uh, the house one night and I knew there was something wrong and I went out of the house and I knew they followed they followed me <coughs> excuse me and um, when they approached me there was military intelligence how old are you and roughly said, how old roughly were you I was you? in my 30s you were in your 30s yeah 30s you? okay and they said um, we got a car around oh they asked to come in the house I said they come in my house and they, they had a car around the corner and I got in the back of the car Dodge they told me chapter and verse what I'd done the weekend before. I could not believe it. They told me I'd been in a pub on a Saturday. I'd gone to a mate's on the Sunday morning. I'd picked up two handguns. I'd gone back to the pub. I had the key to the private accommodation upstairs. There was two fellas. I opened the door, bedroom door, put the bag in. They said that the two guns was to kill an Irish Republican in Manchester. My job was to supply the guns. And then there was two ex-soldiers that were going to shoot the fella. I had people in Manchester that had done a reconnaissance where he lived, where he worked and all that. I couldn't believe it, God. I couldn't believe it. And I suddenly thought, I suddenly turned around. I went, well, go on, he nicked me. And one of them went, what do you mean? I went, nick me, go on, nick me. Because my thinking was, well, I'm sitting in the back of a car. I'm not in a police cell. I'm not in an holding centre. I'm not in Paddington you know, anti-terrorist uh, unit. So I, I bluffed it and, and, and he turned around to me, he wanted me to say, listen, Frank, he said, we'll give you enough rope and you'll hang yourself. And two years later, best part of two years later, well, I clearly hung myself. Yeah. In that period, that two-year period, when you got the fear put up you then, did you have the fear? Were you thinking, oh, I've got to slow down, I've got to slow down, what's going no, on? No, that's the world? crazy bit. Okay. That's, that's, that's the crazy bit. I think I was way too blase about it, way too blase. You know, I, I probably believe my own hype. Yeah. The difference is the hype he was believing when it came to the football was one thing. Mm. You know, I make no bones about it. If people say to me, well, you was a terrorist. You know, some people would say, oh, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mm. I don't care what people call me. Mm. If technically, technically what I was doing is classified as terrorism, which it was, then yes, I'm a terrorist. You know, I can't. I wouldn't accuse somebody like the, the, the um. I'm trying to think of his name now. The fellow that bombed the, the hotel, you know, the Grand Hotel mm. in, um, in in Brighton, Patrick McGee. Yeah. Right. If someone said to me, "If you'd have had the same opportunity," and top Sinn Fein people, IRA people, was in a hotel and you could plant a bomb, would you have planted a bomb? At that time, yeah, I would. So I can't call him a terrorist, can mm. I? Because at that time, I would have done exact. I would have done exactly the same. So it's the treadmill. Once you're on it, 
Yeah. You you just you And how many men like knocking on your shoulder going, Go on, Frank, you've done well there, mate. Well done, Frank. Go on, push forward. Let's go again, Frank. Let's go. How many men did you have behind well, there you? Was in a this? Tight, I mean, you've got to take it into account. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a brief I'll give you a brief history. You could be you could have back then you can't now as a prescribed organization. Yeah. But back then you could have been a member of the Altered Defence Association. So you, you you would have played a support role, if you like. If you was part of the military wing of it, which was the Ulster Freedom Fighters, that was a very, very small group of people and you, you had a degree of autonomy. And you clearly didn't want to talk about what you things you were going to do yeah. to the bulk of, of, of the UDA. And then you had the LPA, which was the Loyalist Prisoners Association. So you could What was that one? Loyalist Prisoners? Prisoners Association. Okay. So that was to support the families of, of Loyalist Prisoners. Uh, so to assist them with, you know, getting to the prisons, etc., um, clothing a certain degree, some money, because obviously there's no man, you know, bringing in a wage anymore. So you could be quite, you didn't have to be militant to be a member of the UDA, but you were clearly militant if you was a member of, of the UFF, the Ulster Freedom Fighters. So you you didn't want that to be too many people. Yeah. Because that, that was dangerous. That was dangerous. Which one was more dangerous? The Freedom Fighters one? Yeah. Was that the next level up for you? Yeah. That was it. That Yeah. that I wouldn't have had anybody in my company using that title if they weren't prepared to pull a trigger. Because I couldn't see the point. And we'd, we'd been to another, another lawless organisation's function one night. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, they they brought some weapons out, right? They had, they had what you call a show of strength. And I knew some of the people behind those balaclavas, and I thought, fuck off! You wouldn't even have a fight on a fo- on a terrace. Mm. Never mind pull a trigger mm. or or plant a bomb. It's just no way. And we swore blind we would never ever do that. And then on one particular night, we had our, we had a function. It wasn't much point in me putting on a balaclava because everybody knows my voice. But two other people came out. So I was still dressed up the same, but I just didn't have the balaclava on. I still had the combat, you know, wear on. The two fellas either side of me who were wearing balaclavas, who clearly weren't going to speak, they both had, they both had handguns. That's telling everybody in front of me, you know, know that these two people would use these. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have them on the stage with me. Yeah. So that 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 was the difference. So you didn't, and there were others, but obviously you didn't expose it all in in one go. You know, on another occasion, you'd have two different fellas or three or four other fellas. You never showed your true strength mm. because there might have been someone in that audience. You know, in that company, who's on the phone later onto the old bill saying, definitely up a dozen of them, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you had to keep that. So you're talking bit. about there on stage showing strength of two fellas in front of you wearing ballets and you sat behind them as the main man. Mm. What were you doing on that stage? Well, you were recruiting for a start and you was getting support. You know, you had to pay for stuff. You know, you had to pay for weapons. And you had to pay for for prisoners, you know, prisoners' families. So, you know, you, you you obviously charged the ticket. You had you had raffles, 
Um, you had auctions. You know, you had to, you had to try. You had to try to get money, and you had to try and recruit as well. You know, how easy was it to recruit someone like that? You being one of the top too faces easy. at Tottenham. Too, was there other? Was there yeah. other clubs who would all come on board and say well, we're part I, of this? I don't say this very often because I don't like to be derogatory. Anybody else has put a commitment into it over the years. But there's one particular football team, right, who always get accredited as being the most loyalist, shall we say, and that's Chelsea. At the height of when I was in charge, I never swore one Chelsea fan into the Ulster Defence Association. Certainly didn't swear him into the Ulster Freedom Fighters, that's for sure. But that's the perception because Chelsea used to go to Rangers quite a lot and, and go over for the 12th of July, which is a big day in Belfast. So they've always been accredited old Chelsea. So if, I go, if I'm in a cab in Belfast and you know, somebody has a London accent, they go, oh, Chelsea. And I have to go, fuck off, mate. No, I'm not Chelsea. Yeah. I'm fucking Tottenham. Mm. Because the same people that took over in London were my mates from Tottenham. Yeah. That's how we knew each other. That's how we trusted each other because we'd had each other's backs at different times. We'd been at court with each other. We'd been we'd been to weddings, christenings, you know, family occasions. We trusted each other. But I don't say that very often. I, I don't because I try not to define it as a football thing. Mm. But it's not a bad thing at this stage to mention. Originally, it was us. Now, by the same token. You know, I do know a lot of good Chelsea boys, you know, who, I'd, who I would class as loyalists. Not paramilitaries, loyalists. What's the difference, paramilitary and loyalists? Well, because a, a loyalist, you can just support the loyalist cause. You don't have to take an oath and join an, an illegal paramilitary organisation. So, uh, okay. you, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, you don't have to break the law to be a loyalist. You can be a political loyalist. So you said that you've got to take the oath mm. to be in the paramilitary yeah. Explain a little bit more on that. Well, generally speaking, you have a Bible and you have an handgun and then you read, somebody else reads that and you repeat what they say. And I took that oath very seriously. Very, very serious. But partly because I'm a man on the Bible for a start. I, mean, I wasn't the most... I, I, I am I'm religious. I'm, I'm my own private person when it comes. I'm not evangelical. I won't try and convince you. Of my, you know, of my um, religious beliefs, but I know I've got a, a kind of spiritual thing going. I mean, I went to Sunday school. I went to Sunday school when I was a kid, so I've clearly retained some of some of that. But yeah, I took an oath and I meant it. I mean, the same as you know, the, the oath to my wife was I meant it, and you know, and still mean it. So if someone took the oath. What have they got to do for your trust for them to take the oath and follow through on everything? Well, you can start You can start off quite simply. You can ask them to store weapons. You can ask them to go and pick the weapons up. You know, you could ask them to transport the weapons. And then you just have to know someone personally. You have to get on it. Look, if you were going to go on a piece of work, so to speak, and you was going to go and rob a security van years ago, you'd only have the right people around you, mm -hmm. wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. You know, all right, you might have someone on board on the say-so of somebody else. But generally speaking, you'd want your own team, mm. you know, wrapped around you. 
So that's what it would be. So I, you know, I had to work out if we say we're going to go and do this, are they really going to do it? Now, I'll give you a very quick example. In the 80s, down at King's Cross, you had all the brasses there and the drugs. Yeah. And the people that ran it all were the blackfellas down there, yeah. right? Mainly the rasters. Yeah. They was running all of that, right? They're dripping in gold, drugs on them, and they've got loads of money. Let's go and rob them. Let's go and rob them. So I said to my mate, I've got a lot of time for, you know, been a lot of tight situations with him. And I said, uh, right, we're going to go out in a week. We're going to go down across and uh, we're going to rob them. I wasn't interested in the drugs. I don't do drugs. It's not my thing. I'd have the money and I'll take the jewellery out of them. We're driving down Pancras Way and I turned to him and I went, yours is under the seat. And he went, what do you mean? I said, your thing is under the seat. What thing? See, what do you think we're going to do? Get out of the car, walk up to them and go, oh, give us all your money. Give us all your jewellery. Mm. You know, when they've probably got a fucking bayonet on them that big mm. or machete or whatever it would have been mm. back in those days, if not a gun. Mm. I said, it's a gun. Oh, fuck. Soon as I saw that slight bit of apprehension, Went down the next set of traffic lights, turned right and came back. I thought, fuck that. Mm. Now, that's told me something about him. Mm. Yes, he come to Belfast with me regularly, come to Scotland with me, Glasgow, etc. I'd been to all these different functions, attack parades previously. So to all intents and purposes, he was a great loyalist. But he wasn't a paramilitary. Mm. That's the okay. That's the subtle yeah, difference. Okay. That's that little that's Step taught up. me a lesson yeah. now. How if if he can't even think how he was about to achieve this mm. without me telling him, there's no way was a gun ever going to be put in his company mm. again. No way. No way. How many men did you have who were game? I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. I'm not going to tell. You, I'm not going to tell you that for security reasons. There's as much. There's as much as as yeah. mine. There, there would have been enough to do damage, just put it that way. Mm. There'd have been enough to do some damage. And when you talk about damage, what was your ultimate goal? Well, I'll I'll, I'll take a shortcut, right? I'll take a shortcut. Well, it, it was clearly that you was on one side or the other, right? You were either a free United Ireland, or you was for keeping Northern Ireland British, and I was British. And the people I've got to know, who'd, who, and people who'd been shot, blown up, gone to prison all wanted to be British, and that was good enough for me. That was good enough for me. I'm British. I'm very proud to be British. So as far as I was concerned, they're the people I was fighting for, you know. Um, what I will say, I'm going to jump forward a little bit here to prison. And on a particular visit, I'd been cut A from, from day one. Before you get there, yeah, go on. before we get to prison bit, that period, that two-year period when they, you got the, the tug mm. saying, right, you're going to got your own rope there. Within that two-year period, when was the time when you actually got nicked? Where were you? And what did you get nicked for? I was arrested in a, in a car park at the back of a pub in Birmingham, Perry Bar, and I had seven handguns and 240 rounds of ammunition in a bag. Um, and I, was, I met a fellow at Belfast, and as we went to put it in the boot of his car, 
And as you went to walk away, two fellas were walking towards us with like, overcoats or long coats. And uh, I was just about to say, get the fucking way. Because mm. we were on the, we the chair in the same. I was about to say, opened up their coats, didn't I? Got Eckler and Koch machine guns around their necks. And cars just came out of people in bushes, yeah. just um, get on the floor, get on the floor. And uh, I got on the floor. I went to see where the other fellow was and uh, I got smashed in the cheekbone with an handgun. And it fucking hurt. Mm, <laughs> so my natural instinct yeah, yeah. was was to fucking done mm. was to get up and then course I had a machine gun point at the back of my head and clearly laid back down again. Mm. You know. Um we obviously went to the police station and uh landed up in Winston Green, uh, category A. How long did you get? I'll get to that bit. Mm. I will get to that bit. But this will answer the other question. When I got to Winston Green, the screw said to me, welcome to Winston Green. He said, the last bastion of the POA, which is the Prison Officers Association. Boy, was he proud of it. And I, I treated you like a dog. I mean, this was 93. Yeah. I mean, freezing cold cell, you know, slopping out one shower a week if you was lucky. Phone calls had to be re were recorded. Mm. Um, no gym, uh, no canteen, no church. You could do fuck all. No association. They broke all the rules basically because they could. So it was when Lisa first came to see him. It was behind the screen. She bought the girls. I said, "Don't ever do that again," because it you just got like a lunatic. How old were the kids then? <sighs> Roughly ten and five, maybe. Lisa might be able to correct me on that. Um, and I just said, don't bring them again. It's just, it's not good for them, and it's not good for us. Eventually, we got an open visit, which, it, which <laughs> I say an open visit, we're sitting like this. There's two screws sitting there. Yeah. So it's like being in a soap opera. Yeah. And I, and I, I basically said to Lisa, um, I'm glad I got caught. Mm. And she went, what? How can you want to get caught? And I said, well, babe. Where do you think this was going? Mm. You can't be in charge. You can't have guns wrapped around you mm. and not use them. And I think she said something like, are you telling me you'd have shot someone? And to this day, I don't think I answered. I kind of went, mm. sort of shrugged as it to go, well, yeah, you know. But I meant that. I meant that I was glad I got caught. Did you ever shoot anyone? No, but it wasn't for the want to try and. It wasn't for the. That's the thing. It wasn't for the want to try and. So it was just as well I got caught when I did because it was only going to get worse. It was, uh, we'd, we'd actually planned something earlier in the year. And it was only because the intervention, and, uh, by accident, that somebody very, very prominent, it's in the book. So. Was going to be was was going to be assassinated that day. Um, Who was that? It was that was Ken Livingstone. He was at the head of this parade. We knew he was going to be there, and we there was no mobiles, yeah. and we went all around the country getting people that we knew to turn up on the day and attack the parade. So during the course of the attack, there'd be so much mayhem going on that the gunman would get close to him, shoot him, get away. There was someone on a motorbike. 
<coughs> etc. So, so this is the kind of limps that where you're at now. And he wasn't the only one. There was there was two, there was two others. Who were they? That, that was um, Jeremy Corbyn and um, John McDonnell. And why why did you want to assassinate Jeremy Corbyn? Was because as far as we was concerned, they were supporting the Irish Republican movement. You know, they was making him welcome in London when we thought he was taking the piss. You're bl- you know you're you're blowing us up, and yet you. You know, you're welcoming these people. You're calling them Sinn Fein. Mm. <laughs> we knew they was we knew they was IRA. It's like saying, you know, Jerry Adams still insists he was never in the IRA. Oh mm. come on, mm. please give us some credit. Mm. You know, um, other people ad- admitted that they were, but he clearly couldn't say he was because he was dealing with governments over the years, so mm. he couldn't say he was. But but that's the limps we've gone to. That's the we ain't fucking about no more. That's so. You, you, trying to prove ourselves, I suppose, on the one end, but we we, we couldn't have thought it through, could we? Mm. How many years would you have got for murdering a mm. an MP or conspiracy? Well, Fuck, we'll be sitting here now. We'll be sitting here now. We'll be sitting here now. But this is what I say about the treadmill. Once you get on it, once you accept that responsibility, once you call other people out. For not doing things, well, you've got to do it yourself. You've got, and to, do the it, lead, yeah. you've got to do it. And I say it's only since you know doing the book, and you and I and I and I go fuck me, is that me? Yeah, is that me? I kind of get the football bit, but when it gets to that bit, I think it's absolutely crazy. What was your profile? Did your profile raise when people knew at the football you're also involved in this? To as a well? certain degree, to a certain degree. And I was also made by welcome by a lot of other football people. You know, that's why there's certain West Ham fellas I know now and you know, Millwall, Portsmouth, Rangers. You know, it's yeah, it it, it does it, it does. Because because otherwise they'd be wanting to knock the shit out yeah. of you. But yeah. they're not gonna do that because they respect you because of the other thing that you're doing. How much how much of your ego got in the way of all of this? The football violence uh, yeah. and then everything no, that's gone through. Been. No, it must have been. I can't. Look, I worked with a fellow who went on to be my governor and him and a mate wanted to come to Belfast. He was intrigued. He'd never been. And about we had some friends from the West Midlands, different places. There was between 20 and 30 of us. And we went to a function <coughs> in what was an old um, cinema. So it was a big old place, could hold three, 400 people upstairs. And about 10 to 10, a fella come over, tapped me on the shoulder. He went, Frank, give it 10 minutes. And I went, all right, okay. As soon as 10 o'clock came, all the lights went down. Blokes walked towards the double doors, right? And simply the best came on. And suddenly the doors opened and 12, 15, Balaclava, heavily armed men, you know, M60s, you know, the mm. big bullet belts mm. over the shoulders mm. and all that. Yeah. March for, and the place went mental. There was people up on the table. The place went absolutely So they come mental. in. Yep. And they all went up on the stage. While everyone's watching this, I've crept away, gone round the back, and then there's some steps going up onto the stage. And then the chap who was in charge of that whole area, southeast Antrim, it was in Rathcall, 
a good friend of mine, Greggy, he, he got killed eventually in a feud by another friend of mine, which t- that's what happens in a feud, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, he went up on the stage to, to address everybody and he said a few words and then I came up and then stood next to him. And I'd be lying if I never, you know, if I said that's into- that's not intoxicating. Mm. You got 12, 15, every now and then behind you. You got three, four hundred people in front of you. The bloke I worked with was just sitting there with his mouth open. Yeah. Because he only knew me in work. Yeah. And he suddenly seen me up on, on that stage. But I always say I like to think I acted responsibly because I had the power to have people killed. Mm. You know, I had the power to have people kneecapped. But I was never a bully. I'd put the wind up somebody or I'd get somebody else to put the wind up somebody and to say, look, you know, I hope you've learnt your lesson. Mm. But yeah, there must have been a degree of ego there. Mm. There must, Even if I wasn't conscious of it at the time, because I was focused. I was focused on what I, I don't I had a lot of time to think about a lot of things, to be quite honest. Well, that's the next bit I was going to say. If you, you're going to footy, home and away games, and you're doing this throughout the whole week, how do you have time to with your wife and your kids and normal life. Well, uh, we have this. We've had this discussion. I'm sure you, you know. You can imagine plenty of times, and I think Lisa does give me credit in the sense that I've always been a family man. So we always still went to the coast. We went to castles. We went for days out. Even my daughters will give me credit for that. You know, they'll say, "No, Dad, you was always, you know, you was always good in that in that respect." Looking back on it, I can't believe. How much time I did spend out of the house to be mm. quite okay. I did the football tailed off. The football did become secondary, if I'm honest. What mid thirties, yeah. Yeah, so if if Tottenham was playing on a Saturday, but I had to go a bit of business to, to sort out in a social club in the Midlands or somewhere. That would take over. That would take it? priority. Okay. Yeah, that would that would definitely take priority. Uh, and again, I suppose there's just what I said earlier on about the football. My my mum blamed Lisa for my plight, so to speak. Right? She said to Lisa one day, "I blame you for this because you've you've let him have too much freedom." <laughs> if at any point Lisa had turned around to my mum and said, "Oh well, I'm not having him doing that," she go, "You can't tell my Frank what to do." <laughs> That's mum's for you, isn't it's it? Mum's, yeah, it? of course. It's yeah. Mum. Okay, she apologised. Yeah. I mean, eventually she did apologise for. How know. do you think sitting in now in your early sixties? How do you think, like, what you might have put your wife through mentally, knowing that are oh, you going to come back? What are you getting up to? Did she know everything? No. No. Okay. No, I think there was an element because if you're going to football, mm. home and away, you're going to Europe. You're with the boys. And don't forget some of the fellas that on the paramilitary side were the same fellas. Yeah. So if I sit to Lisa, I'm going to Glasgow. She's just like, it's going to be his nutty mates to Glasgow. Yeah. Going to watch Rangers. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't know I'm meeting What you're up right? to, yeah. She doesn't know I'm meeting her. Yeah. She yeah. doesn't know that I'm organising a shipment to go over from Scotland to go over to Northern Ireland. You shipment know, of? Of guns. Mm. She, you know, she's... She, She's she's not aware of that. I mean, people to this day will say, well, she, she must have known. But wasn't something you sat down in front of the telly and discussed, discussed yeah. very often. Do you think she knew deep down, but was just didn't want to say anything, just let you get on with it because she was madly in love? 
I'm a very lovable bloke. Mm. So yeah, was that, was that? But you know what I mean. I did say I did turn my head left and see yeah, she's, she's back. She's looking. Yeah. She's, she's on your case right put, now. She's put her head down. <laughs> oh, we've always had a strong bond. There's no. But do you think she no turned point. a blind eye to it? Do you think she Possibly. knew more than you thought she knew? Possibly. Mm. Possibly. And again, that scenario where you think girls, you know, or your wife, you know, you're one of the boys at the football. Yeah. Well. She would come to an occasional social event, right? That we'd organised mm. in London. So, if dozens of people mm. are coming up, shaking my hand, tapping me on the back, wanting to be seen in my company, I must have thought at some stage, must have, I bet she's really proud of me. Yeah, you know, she can see I'm, you know, I'm in charge here. Mm. I must have, I'd be very surprised if I didn't think mm. that. I can't give you an occasion when it happened, but I'd be very surprised. I'd have to think I'd have to be pretty modest not to think that I must have thought that at yeah. some stage that I was impressing her. Mm. Yeah. When did it all come to a halt for you personally? The moment you got nicked, did you were sitting in your prison cell thinking, I've got to stop this, or you still at it in prison? Yeah, because here's the, here's the irony, right? What can prove what can prove how committed you are better than now becoming a loyalist prisoner? Or what people would yeah. call a loyalist prisoner award. Yeah. That's the ultimate badge. That's the ultimate badge. You, you you sit in a room now with people who've done time as a loyalist prisoner. You don't have to talk to each other. You don't have to big each other up. Yeah. There is just an instant mutual respect mm. because you know you know what you went through you know what each other's families went mm. through you know you you know that you missed your child's first day in secondary school mm. you missed birthdays you missed anniversaries you funerals missed a lot yeah things you're yeah. never ever going to get back yeah. so you you, you kind of know that so no when I went into prison you, you've got to make up your mind am I going to walk around with my tail between my legs or I'm going to say, well, this is what I am. And don't forget, there's a lot of Irish people. Yeah. Well, I wasn't anti-Irish, but I was certainly anti-IRA. Mm. And I, I remember when I got convicted, this very uh, smart security officer come up to me and he went to me, well, you know where you're going there, son, didn't you? I said, no, where am I going? He said, you're going to Long Lighting. Now, I knew Long Lighting had at least yeah. half a dozen IRA prisoners yeah. in there. And I went to him, is that right? And he said, yeah. And he put a big smirk on his face. Mm. So let me tell you something. He said, you see, when I get there, I said, the first one of them I see, I'm going to fucking do them. Mm. And when I'm up in front of the governor, I'm going to quote your name. And he took the smile up of his face, yeah. didn't he? But I meant it. Yeah. But yeah, I meant yeah, yeah. it. Because you think I'm walking into that environment and have myself as a victim. Yeah. As something I promised myself, there's no way I was going to be a victim. And I wasn't going to go on the numbers. Um, there were people that come up to me and basically said, oh, you know, how much was you selling the guns for? Well, they're villains, aren't they? Mm. So they're doing what they do is for a pound note. And I went, what are you talking about? Was it selling the guns? And they went, what? They, they couldn't yeah. understand. As they got to know me over a course of time and saw, I mean, I'd, I'd get sent craft work from the maze, you know, in, in Belfast, and I'd put it on the wall. And people would come and go, fucking hell. Where'd you get that from? 
or how do you know him? Or, and I say, well, it's just the way, it, you know, it's just the way it is. And m most of the screws were fairly respectful as well. They, they gave me a little bit of leeway, some. I mean, others were just dogs, but. Um, Did people have the fear of you and Nick, do you reckon? I think to a certain degree, but. I didn't exp I didn't exploit that dodge. What I did was I don't smoke and you get two and a half ounces of old Oban yeah. every week. So I very quickly learned that I can sell that and people, you know, it's double bubble, but they're not going to give you that. Mm. So they'll give you phone cards. Mm. I learned how to um, exploit that, if you like. <coughs> so I, came, I became the person to come to for... Um, for the tobacco, the phone cards, cash. I'd buy budgie cages, trainers. Um, this chain around my neck is from from Winston Green. Yeah, you won't want to see the rest of it, Dodge. Go on. You won't want to see what's hanging on the end of it. I'll leave it out. It's the Tottenham Court Cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you took your Tottenham uh, hat off when you come in here in this West, West Ham shrine. I was trying to be discreet. <laughs> yeah, so I quickly learned that. That exerts a certain amount of control yeah. on a wing because you're the man to go to. And I was quite generous. If there were people I knew had nothing, I'd say, go and cook us a meal. You know, I'd help, but here's a couple of phone cards and have a meal yourself. Yeah. So you become an integral part of that. <coughs> of that. There'll be people there that can't stand you, but they want your tobacco. Yeah. They need them phone, they need those phone cards. And it the only time it went wrong was one particular night, two black fellas come to the door. It was about 10 to 8, and I'd gone to the urn and got a jug of hot water. And they pushed their way through the door. They kind of robbed me in they, obviously. <coughs> so it was just an automatic thing. You know, I didn't put sugar in it or anything. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, preconceived. And I just launched the water. I thought, fuck it. And I launched the water over them. And there was about that much left in the bottom of the jug, and they ran off fucking screaming, and a screw came along. Mm. I went, what's happening, Frank? I went, God, I don't believe it. I'm trying to get in me. In me Peter Light and I said and fucking bumped into me what was going up and he went give me an old fashioned look as if to go yeah, all yeah right. Right. but I, I very quickly learned you can't get Nick for having hot water mm. you can get Nick for throwing it over someone mm. deliberately but you can't get Nick for it so all these people walking around with homemade tools they can get Nick for that mm. so the sooner I let it be known you come near me you're going to get a fucking jug of hot water over mm. here Excuse me, I don't know what happened a couple of times. People wouldn't pay their debts. I didn't mention how many times in the book because my wife's got to read the book, mm. you know, and other people, I don't really want them to know. But it became a necessity at times. And uh, in the end, I was going to church and uh, an old black boy I used to go to church with and he said to me one day, Frankie, he said, you carry on like this, they're going to call you Frank the Baptist. <laughs> What was the thought process for you when you were in Nick to go, when I come out, I want to stop, I want to calm down, I want to live a different lifestyle. When you come out, what lifestyle did you carry on with or what lifestyle did you turn to? <coughs> well, while I was away, I joined the um, industrial cleaning course. I passed every certificate you could get. I took the assessor's course. So I could train other inmates, and I got rewarded for that. And I very enjoyed doing that. Very enjoyed doing that. So the plan was to start my own business, or get into that side of it. Um, 
special branch were waiting for me on the day I came out. Offered to set me up in business, which I told them to fuck off. They got there an hour before Lisa and my mate came to pick me up. Why did the special branch want to set you up for business? <coughs> to do what? Because they wanted me to get back involved and keep them informed of what's what's going on. Because people were going to trust me. You know, I hadn't grasped anybody up. Mm. Um, so they wanted information. And, and they actually, a week later, a couple of weeks later, they actually came, not the same two, they came round the house, doorbell went, and I went upstairs, looked out the window, two fellas standing there, clipboards, making out there like the council or somebody. Lisa went to the doc, we need to speak to Frank, he's not here, she says. No, 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 we need to speak to Frank. She's not, because I'm telling her to say I'm not there. No, no. Well, of course, the old trick, there's been a threat on his life. Mm. Well, I don't want to worry about that, do I? Mm. So now I come down the stairs. Can we come in? <coughs> I said, you've got 10 minutes, something like that. Mm. Come in. One of them went to sit on the seat. I said, oi, don't make yourself fucking comfortable. You ain't staying that long. <laughs> you know, cheeky fucker. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not making this up, Dodge. They offered, they, they wanted to keep me on a payroll, right, on a monthly payroll, and they wanted to give me money to go and buy guns. And the proviso was that I don't let those guns get into the hands of anybody that might use them. But the idea was was to say that other people would say, fuck, you know, look at Frank. He's come out, you know. He's back at it. Yeah. So they're gonna, people are going to confide him, you know. People yeah. are going to trust me and that's what they banked on. And I just said, go on, fuck up, your mm. time's up. Mm. You know. Wow. I got out on a Wednesday on the Sunday, we went for a drink with Lisa's mum and dad. And on the way back from the pub, we came through the local market. And I think Lisa went into a shop to get oh, tin of peas, carrots, mm. whatever it was. And the pub opposite, the door was slightly ajar. And I could hear somebody singing, and when this war is over, Irish fella singing this. And I went fucking potty ran across the road, kicked the fucking door. I was more annoyed because it was English people that I knew that was in the pub letting this geezer stand up on the fucking day singing this yeah. IRA song, right? As I went to the door, I said, I'll give you when the fucking war's over. And a fella that I knew went to me like that, nodded his head, and I turned around and it was poor Lisa standing on the other side of the road. I hadn't even been out a week. Mm. Not even a week, and I thought, fuck. So I, I definitely had to eat humble pie about that. But I hadn't changed, Dodge. Yeah. I knew I hadn't changed. And I tried to convince myself that I would walk away. And I didn't walk away. Uh, and um, okay, I formed other things. I did have a little, I got more political. I, I started to do some community work that benefited people that I knew in Northern Ireland. You know, I was going into communities where they were still being threatened. Even when we were being told there was peace, they weren't getting any peace. They couldn't go and buy a loaf of bread and a pint of milk because they get attacked by the other community. We weren't getting told that on the news. Yeah. Um, and we thought, well, can't keep shooting everyone, can you? You can't blow everyone up, can you? We've got to find something else to do with these people. So we came back, had a function, raised some money. We got a 40 foot container, we had it converted into a shop. 
so they didn't have to leave the estate. Mm. They could, and they, someone got a job, you know, running it. So the mindset did did change gradually. There's other places we went. We we had a fun day for the kids. You know, how long did you get? Go. Well, this is the bit I left out. One of my codes walked after six weeks because they couldn't prove what was in there. But the only person that could get him signed would have been me. And I said, you keep saying you don't know what's in that bag. They can't prove it. Yeah. So he walked up. I said, five and a half, six weeks. The belt last fella absolutely bottled it. Right, big time. And that was proved later on. So when it came to the day, I was going guilty. And there was a good reason why I wanted to go guilty. I wanted it over and done with. Because mm. I was more worried about conspiracy charges to other things. And every mm. time they said all the branches coming up the speech, I think, fuck it. Hell. I mean, there was something about sand that was in the boot of my car and they were saying that there'd been explosives in the boot of the car. So, I'm, you know, I'm getting more and more, mm. fuck, what are they going to say next? Go guilty, let's get this over yeah. and done with. But he was going not guilty and he had every chance of getting off. So on the day, I'm going up for sentencing, he's going up for trial and they spooked him up. And he came into the holding cell and went to me, did you, did you know this carrying a life sentence? And I said, yeah. And he said, how long have you known that? I said, from the beginning. And I looked at him and I went, well, thank fuck you didn't know. Because mm. I'd to think what you'd have said. Anyway, they've done a deal. He's going to get two to three years if he goes guilty. We go up, you've got the, um, the press, you've got the law students, and the old judge, uh, Judge Rougier, he says, um, he's basically let the court know that I'm the bad one in all of this, right? He's, he said things like, um, if you lay down with dogs, you've got to expect to pick up a few fleas. Uh, you're looking down both barrels of a double-figured sentence. And I thought, fuck that. That's 10 to start up with, mm. isn't it? I thought I'd be lucky if I got eight and do four. Mm. So all of a sudden, he's turned around. I won't say the fella's name, but he went... He was. Ba I didn't realise at the time, he was letting the, the press and the law students that his hands were tied. Yeah. So I got explained to me afterwards... So he said, I sentence you to 30 oh, for your fucking joke, months to him. Yeah. 30 <laughs> months. So that, so that was his turn up. Yeah. He'd done nine months on remand, was worth 18 months. Yeah. He had six months left, to yeah. do, basically. They took him away. And then he, oh, the court just went quiet. And I thought, oh, fuck it. We got 10, 12, 15, what? And he said, I'll sentence you to five years. So I just stood there. And this court screw grabbed my arm. He went, coming in. And I went, what are you fucking doing? Because mm. I'm waiting for a, another lump. Yeah. He went, he's give you five years. <laughs> and I went, yeah, and a fucking rest. Yeah, yeah. And as I turned my head, he was picking his papers up. To close judge, the book. And there's some pals in the, in, the, in the gallery putting their thumbs up like that, you know. And uh, I went downstairs and I passed his barrister. And his barrister said to me, you are a very lucky man. <laughs> I said, how'd you work out, mate? I'm going to prison for five years. He went, you know. Mm. So I knew he'd told him everything. Yeah. Anyway, I go to a little office, my briefs there and his junior. They both had a bit of paper. And one turned it over and it had 10 written on it. 
and the other one had 12. And I said, how's that work out then? And they said, what the judge was trying to explain to the to the press and the law students was he can't he cannot give you a disproportionate sentence to otherwise they where we could have an appeal. So he's given you twice as much. So if he'd have got five, I'd have got ten. Yeah. Because he only because he did the deal and went guilty. Yeah. He only got two and a half years. So the most he could give me was five. Happy days. And the irony is, <laughs> as crazy as I thought yeah. she was, Lisa says, oh, with a bit of luck, I think you're going to get five. And it was five. Five. What'd you do, two and a half? Yes, I've done two and a half out of that. Yeah, I've done two and a half out of it. So. What's your world like today? After all the madness you've gone through, mm. when you come out, did you carry on any madness? And when did the madness stop for you? At what age were you? I'm not totally sure it's even stopped to be quite honest. But it must have calmed I down. I isolate myself. Let's put it this way. There's things I isolate myself from. Yeah. It's a bit like, if don't I get in trouble at football, yeah, don't, don't go. go football. Yeah. Just don't go, yeah. right? So there's other scenarios where I just say, well, you know what? Don't be tempted to be in that environment again and be drawn in because the old loyalty bit will be drawn on yeah. again. And I'm still very, very loyal. What I will say now is the loyalty to my family. Yeah. That's the striking difference now. So is the old fire in the belly still? Not that there's any need for it now, thankfully, because of the, the peace process. Technically, there should be no need for mm. it now. It's, it should be politics. You mm. discuss things now. And, and even I've learned to do that a lot a lot better than I once would have. Um, a, a good friend coined the phrase many years ago and he said nobody was exclusively right and nobody was exclusively wrong mm. so if you can meet in the middle and have a conversation mm. better for that so that's what I would say to younger people mm. I, un I understand if you're if your older brother or brothers your dad your uncles grandfather whatever it be if they've all been loyalist prisoners and they're all respected in your street and all respected in your community. What young man would not want the same kudos? Yeah. He feels almost obliged to do that, to carry on that family tradition. Whereas I would say, son, I understand exactly how you feel and why you would want to do it. Go and get yourself a career. Yeah. Come back and help your community out. And hopefully the fella who you perceive as your enemy on the other side of the wall or the peace line, Hopefully you think in the same way. Mm. You know, you throw a petrol bomb, that's your, you're fucked. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's your future over and done with, you know. So if you, back in the day, if you threw a petrol bomb and got nicked, how long would you get for that? I don't know. Probably not a lot back yeah. then because it happened so often. Yeah. It, it You know, it, it was almost, I think, God, must have been so many kids when yeah. they were growing up back then in the 70s and the 80s <laughs> and the, it was a natural thing mm. to them. That was a rite of passage almost. And if they were seen to be doing that or filling the bottles or, or whatever, mm. then they'd be recruited at a very young age. Yeah. Well, can you look after this? Yeah. Can you carry that from A to B? And then it kicks in then, doesn't it? The ego, the trust. Have you ever in the last 10 years had the fear of losing your life? Mm. Yeah. Because what? Because I look at it like this, right? If 
I have to take into account that there are still dissident Republicans, right, who don't agree with the peace process, still want Brits out, still when they when they can still plant bombs, shoot police officers in Northern Ireland, right? I'm not I'm not naive enough to think that there are still not active militant Republicans on the mainland. If I was if 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 I was the same age as me, if I was an up-and-coming dissident Republican and I wanted to prove myself to the Republican movement, I'd be a good target. I would be a legitimate target because I've been a loyalist prisoner. So I am conscious of it. I, I don't take it for granted. I mm. I still look at car number plates. I'm still very conscious that, you know, the way I go to work, different things. And and that's gone on for a, a long time. But I'm not going to cry about it. Mm. I'm not going to cry about it because I'd have done I would have done the same mm. years ago. But yeah, I am I am I am conscious of it. There's there's no doubt about that. Um we'll see what happens, will we? Moving on to your book, Frank. Mm. Your book your book you got here. Left, right, loyalist from one extreme to another. When was that written? Oh, it's got to be five years ago, maybe six years now. Um, it actually ends in 1996. Mm. And I'm halfway for writing another book. We're going to call that. Other... I'm not sure yet, but it's, it's obviously going to be far more reflective. It will finish off the militant side of it and then a different journey, mm. a, a different way I've looked at things, some things up. Um, I would, I, when you asked about family, mm. there's not a day that goes by that I do not feel guilty. Yeah. And I say this, and I have to be careful here because I could feel the tears welling up, all right? If either of my daughters came to me and said, thanks to you, Dad, mm. or whatever, oh, it would kill me. Yeah. It would it would utterly destroy me. And thank God they've never done that. They've never that's my biggest fear. Yeah. That if I'm not scared of anyone yeah. in 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 a sense, that's my biggest fear. If we ever me and my eldest girl have some blinding arguments. <laughs> we have some <laughs> I mean Lisa will attest to that. We have some blinding arguments. And I'm really, really surprised she hasn't done me with that one. Mm. Um, really, and I appreciate that she hasn't done it. I know she wouldn't mean it, but I would dread it happening. Yeah. I just, I, I don't think I could live with that, to be honest. Before we finish up here, have you got any final words for your two daughters and your wife? I, I do say in the book that, you know, um, Obviously, how much I love them, and you know, I appreciate them. Obviously, putting up with me and what I've put them through. I can't change it. I can't. I can't wipe it clean. Um, I mean, I can still try and be the best husband I can be, the best dad. I've got three beautiful granddaughters. Um, I don't intend doing anything I shouldn't do. Let's put it that way. That's that's done. That's done and dusted. I mean, I've still got the same 
I've still got the same view. I'm still British, still very proud of British. I still want Northern Ireland to remain British. That's not going to change. But, but that's politics. That's politics. I'll sit down and fight my corner over there. But my family can sit safe and know that, in fact, there's no nonsense with anything. Yeah. Nothing. If there was a bit of hooky gear around the corner now and someone said, oh, I, no. Yeah. And in all fairness, since prison, I've never been in trouble. Yeah. I've sailed close to the wind on the same subject. But no, I couldn't I couldn't expect Lisa to come up and sit in front of me in a prison again. No way. Mm. No way. There's, there's no way that's happening. And she's always been supportive of, of what I've done over the years. And she, and she still is to this day. And we're not getting any younger. Yeah. You what know, are you today? 64? I'm 66. 66. She's 67. You know, and, and, I, and I know I'm a very lucky man. I, that, that, that is something I do know. I am a very, very lucky man. Yeah. Um, and there's still a lot of things I want to do. And, and I know how much time I've wasted. Yeah. Everything I've done has been for the wrong things. Appreciated by everybody, everybody else. Mm. Um, I've done podcasts. I had my own podcast for a while, um, frankly speaking, with Frank Port and I. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Met some very, very interesting people. Some of them who kind of left a, a you know, lasting impression on me. Mm. I think mainly that's health. Yeah, mate. It's health. It's, I'm so conscious. I, I went back to the gym about four weeks ago, five weeks. Following week, I caught shingles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, getting over that, you suddenly get Isn't a, it funny how a stinking life, cold. A life, you go back, you, you've lived this mad life, and all of a sudden you're like reflecting, which we spoke about, reflecting, mm. stopping and getting off the treadmill and having yeah. a look, thinking, Jesus, where's all the years gone for doing that? And how important your health and your family are in, these, in your Well, as, I, as I your... say, I can, I can walk into company now. <clears throat> I can walk into a certain company now and I'll still get them drinks bought for me. Yeah. I'll still get the pat on the back. I still, is that what I want? Yeah. I appreciate it. These kids are now in their 20s and 30s, you know, when I go certain places. I also have their photo done with me. Yeah. I find that quite cringeworthy. That's not what I did it for. It wasn't for that, lads. You know, it's far too you know, the effect it had on my family, you, you, you'll never know. Yeah. You'll never understand. Yeah, you've gone home tonight with a nice little photo. You're going to put it on Facebook yeah. tomorrow. Fair enough. But it mm. means fuck all to mm. me. It means absolutely nothing. And now, um, I've got, as I say, I've got a focus. I don't, my, my, listen, my three granddaughters are innocent, right? Well, the oldest one, <laughs> she, I think she, she does know what happened in the past. The other two don't really mm. know what's what. So, What's my legacy going to be to them? What how are they going to how are they going to describe their you know their their grand? I know my mates would describe mm. me, and a lot of blokes would be quite content with that. How do you think your mates would describe you? <laughs> Fucking mad, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I think they mean it in a quite a complimentary way. Yeah. Well, I'd like to think probably top of the list was loyal. For a start, um, but yeah, like I said before, it's all like getting a reputation. You try getting rid of it. Yeah, it's stuck, isn't it? So when I'm a member of the Professional Speaking Association, so the people I mix with there are so far removed mm. from. So it's almost like schizophrenia. Mm. You don't know who you. Who am I today? Mm. Which which bloke am I today? Who am I representing today? Um, are you happy today? 
I don't know. That's a very that's a very pertinent question. That very pertinent question. I can I can get depressed very quickly. Now, whether that's guilt, frustration, I don't know. But it it happens more frequently. That could be because of health. Knowing the age that I am, there is that desperation. Am I going to have time to leave a legacy, security for my family? That's a pressure, if yeah. I'm honest. That is that is a pressure, and I've got to come to terms with that. But, you know, I, I like to think I've still got a little bit of... Um, I don't give up easy, let's put it that way. No, I can see that. I just need to get on the right treadmill. Yeah. I've got to identify the treadmill and go, right, now press the green button, fucking keep going. <laughs> Mind you, I'm so unfit. I've probably fallen. I've probably fallen over here. Frank, I've really enjoyed this oh, episode. Yeah, thanks, though. Thanks for giving me the opportunity as well. Appreciate I've really it. enjoyed. Thanks for your honesty. Yeah, that's okay. That's good. Really, really enjoyed. This is something I've never gone down the route of this before. But to hear this from the horse's mouth has been quite an experience for the last hour and forty minutes. I wish you all the best. I appreciate. I, I, it. Yeah, I really it. do wish you all the best and. I wish your uh, wife all the best as well, Lisa, for standing by you. What a loyal woman she is and wife to you. Amazing. Well, I've always described her as my guardian angel. Yeah, I can see that. She's always been my guardian angel. And... um, Very lucky, mate. I I fear anyone upsetting her, you know, because I I just dread to think what I would do. I think you've got a good idea. I think you've got a good idea. I wouldn't like to think on that one. But, but, um, after, yeah. but no, she is, you know, people can frat around, oh, she's my world, she's yeah. this, she's, she's that. I I just could not imagine life without, without you know, cooking could improve a little bit. But <laughs> Frank, <laughs> top man. I thoroughly enjoyed Love that. Me. Thanks for having me. Good man. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers, good luck man. to you. Ta-da.